Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, Pacifica host and contributor to this show, Garland Nixon, on Metaphors, Malcolm X, and EU head Joseph Jungle Burrell's Fantasy Garden. Meanwhile, the U.S. declared, quote, let's do this proxy war thing, and then Russia said, let's dance. Well, 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 looks like it's happening in West Africa. It was once said that a revolution is impossible without a revolutionary situation. Furthermore, not every revolutionary situation leads to revolution. Let's talk. Hi, Garland here, and uh, Africa is undergoing a very interesting time, revolutionary time, one could argue, and what's happening in in, uh, West Africa um, is interesting, and and what caused it, what created the dynamics that caused the people in West Africa to revolt? Let's talk about that. I do believe that this is directly tied to the conflict in Ukraine. I'll put it to you like this. Malcolm X has said, uh, you know, Malcolm X said a lot of very interesting things. And one of the things that he talked about, he used, he used to always use the metaphor of a slave plantation. And one of the metaphors that he used was, and and because it works so well with a situation of class, of economic class, of um, of political, cultural class, et cetera, caste systems. And basically, he said on a plant, a slave plantation, there were the house slaves who had it better. And of course, the field slaves who, you know, barely got some gruel, were beaten every day and worked, you know, 25 hours a day, etc. And he said that um, he spoke of, if someone came to the house slave and said, let's run away, this house slave would say, come on, man, I'm living pretty good. Why would I? Right? No, thanks. I ain't going nowhere. And if they went to the field slave, he'd say, any place is better than here. And I think that's such an appropriate analogy in so many instances, and particularly here, because I believe when we look at the U.S. empire, right, the U.S. empire has a caste system, has a class system, right, a system of power. And of course, at the top is, you know, the neocons, the elite ruling class in Washington, D.C. Now, the people, the elite ruling class in the U.K. like to believe that they're a part of uh, this ruling class, and they may very well be. But in the empire system, you have the U.S. empire, you have um, Europe, right? And then you have the rest of the world that, um, you know, these countries live off of. Now, I would, I would, I would classify it from the Malcolm and X analogy like this, and that would be the U.S. is the master, the ruling elite and the people of Europe will be the house slaves, and the people in the global south will be the field slaves for the purpose of that kind of analogy right now the people in europe don't uh, the elite ruling class know that they're the house slaves but the people of europe do not understand that dynamic they think they were uh, they're on equal footing they think they're viewed on equal footing as the as the way the americans to be quite frank and even the british view themselves but they're not they're not they're viewed, they're still seen as slaves. They're still seen as a commodity. And here's the evidence. The United States feels threatened because Russia and China and several other countries are growing, are on the move, are, are expanding, are expanding their power are, and are becoming independent. So the U.S. has to sacrifice something. It has to, you know, you get mad and he gets mad and it beats one of its slaves. Well, the house slave, though, the house slave lives well, though the house slave gets to eat the master's food and gets to sleep in the master's house and stay warm and have heat and things, things of that nature. They're still expendable. They're still a commodity. They're still chattel. And in the event that the master needs to sell a slave or something, he may sell a house slave. So a house slave could, if you think of the slavery analogy, I think it's the perfect analogy for the empire because the Master could say, okay, I want to sell a slave and sell the house slave. And that house slave could go somewhere else and become a field slave there and lose all of its overnight, lose all of their privileges. And the master doesn't care. Hey, man, I had to get rid of you. I needed some money. And for whatever, they'd say they needed money. They lost money in a bet. Whatever, they needed some money. They sell a few house slaves. They get the money back. The house slave is expendable, just like the field slave. But at the current time, 
It benefits the master to have those house slaves there, right? That's all Europe is. They're house slaves. That's all they are. Nothing more, nothing less. They still have existed by the grace of the masters in Washington, D.C. And now that the masters feel a bit um, threatened, they're going to... Um, you know, dispense with the house slaves. They're going to use the house slaves for whatever they need for their benefit. They, they, the house slaves in their mind feel as though they have greater privileges than the field slaves. So they believe that in the eyes of their master, their courtiers, courtiers, right? They hang around the king and hopefully in the eyes of the king, because they hang around the king's court, they'll be viewed in a, on a higher level. They'll get more privilege this than the people that are not in the court. The house slaves get more privileges than the field slaves. And so these house slaves in Europe think that, you know, hey, man, we get more privileges. Therefore, we're viewed in a higher on a high, from a higher perspective. They're not. And now that the U.S. feels threatened, now that the master feels threatened, the U.S. is just as happy to dispense with its house slaves in France, Germany, wherever, as it is with the field slaves, which would be, you know, in the global south. So the um, one of the things that's going on now in Ukraine is the U.S. is squeezing the, I mean, it's uh, 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 the neo, neoliberal model, the neoliberal capitalist model. It's a neo, the, the, the type of capitalism that the United States use has morphed it or has evolved, whatever you call it, into a neoliberal capitalist model. And this model is extremely flawed. And this model is in, in um, economic collapse. It's an economic collapse and they understand it. So what they're doing is they're simply sacrificing the, the uh, house slaves. They're selling off the house slaves. They're selling off and sacrificing the Europeans. They're sacrificing their everything about them. No longer do you have the illusion in Europe that you're a sovereign or independent nation. No, you can't have that illusion anymore. It's not necessary. It's not needed. And so, no, you'll do what you're told. And that's that. And your master and your, your ruling elite class understand it. And that's what they're going to do. They're going to do what they're told. Well, meanwhile, one of the things that has happened because of the additional economic pressure, there's so many angles where you can go get from Ukraine to Africa. But one of them is as the U.S. puts pressure on the its vassals in, you know, the house slaves in Europe, the uh, they have to use any means they have to try to make their lives better, to try to get more money. So one of the things France is new, has been forced to do is tighten the screws on its colonial vassals in West Africa. You know, the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, uh, uh, France is not a wealthy nation. It's been living off of West Africa. It's been taking the gold and the uranium. The reason that France has, everybody's like, well, France is not the same as Germany and some of these other countries. When they get cut off from cheap energy, they're suffering and they're getting um, deindustrialized. When they're cut off, these other excuse me, countries are cut off from Russia's cheap energy. They become deindustrialized because they don't have an, an, another option for cheap en energy, whereas France is using nuclear energy, right? And so they're not hurting as bad as some of these other countries. They're still hurting, but not as bad. And they can make it through the winter better because blah, blah, blah. But why does France use so much nuclear energy? Because they're robbing West Africa blind of uranium because they have countries that they dominate. They have these colonial countries and they steal their stuff. And one of the things that these countries, one of the things, the things that there's a lot of in West Africa is uranium. Mali has uranium. Um, uh, Niger has uranium. Gabon has uranium. So they can get uranium. They just steal it from the Africans and use it. And they, they have cheap energy, almost free energy. Right. So um, they've been able to survive and be okay because they're robbing Africa. They've got gold. Uh, France has lots and lots of gold, but France doesn't have any gold mine. What do they do? They steal it from West Africa. And one of the things that has happened as the Ukraine conflict and the subsequent sanctions that were placed on Russia make it more difficult and more expensive for European countries to acquire the natural resources that they need to maintain their industry and to maintain just their, uh, a, a, a quality of life. It, it has forced France to tighten the screws on its West African countries. 
right? And in doing that, it has made the people restive. The people in, in, in West Africa, they knew they were getting screwed, but now they're looking around saying, well, this is pretty messed up, man. You're tightening up on us, down on us. You're making us work harder. You're taking more of our stuff and we're still getting nothing. So part of the dynamic is that France has been forced to tighten the screws on West Africa because it can't get cheap energy and some of the resources it needs from Russia anymore. It has to turn to West Africa and squeeze them tighter. Man, much, much, much West Africa. You got to work harder in the uh, mines. You got to give us more stuff, which means you're going to have to live worse off. Meanwhile, um, due to issues of food stuffs, issues of fertilizer, driving up the cost of food, the lives of the people in West Africa, their lifestyle is deteriorating. And think about this. If you're in France and you're here and your life deteriorates to here, that ain't so good. But if you're here and you're so close to the bottom, if you hit the bottom, you won't make a sound. And then you hit the bottom. You're not going to be happy. So the Ukraine conflict in creating an economic problem for Europe, and in particular France, created an environment where France had to tighten down. See, keep in mind, that's how imperialism and colonialism works. The U.S. empire tightened the screws on Europe. You've got to buy our stuff. you got to pay more. We're going to, you know, you got to buy more weapons. you got to come up with more money. We're going to take you to the cleaners. So as the U.S. reaches down and tightens the screws down on Europe, if Europe has somebody to tighten the screws down on, they're going to do it too. And it just so happens that French, France does. Has somebody to tighten the screws, it tightens the screws down, and the West Africans feel the heat from all different directions, and they ain't happy. Now, let me add another thing, and I think it's critical to look at the dynamic of power in the world. Over the past, you know, since the fall of the Soviet Union, the U.S. has been the preeminent power right? They've been the unipolar, whatever the hell you want to call it, right? They've been a preeminent power and they have been callous. They have been arbitrary and capricious with their power and the use of force and economic sanctions and coercion and manipulation. They've been reckless and callous and brutal. And Africa has felt the, you know, the, the, the pain of the, that elbow smashed to the face from the U.S. empire over and over and over. And Everyone looked at the U.S. empire and they saw them bomb or they saw them overthrow Libya. They saw them overthrow Iraq. They saw them overthrow Afghanistan and people were afraid. They saw this guy beating up on everybody. Right. They see this big U.S. beating up on everybody and they're scared. And they're like, man, they got smart bombs. They got planes. They got all this kind of stuff. Nobody dares to challenge them. OK. Ukraine was something that a new dynamic came up. And in this new dynamic, the U.S. said to Russia what it said to everyone else, right? Hey, you better do what we're told. So the U.S. goes to Libya, wherever the hell. Hey, we're overthrowing your governments uh, if you don't do what we tell you to do. And then you know what? Even if you do tell you what, do what we tell you to do, we're overthrowing them anyway, just because we can. So they tried that with Russia. Hey, Russia, you better do what we tell you to do. We're going to surround you with bases. We're going to overthrow Ukraine. We're going to fill it with missiles. We're going to threaten you. And there's nothing you can do about it. Russia sent a note in, um, in December of 2022. And this letter to the U.S. said, uh, you better get your act together in Ukraine or on our border or some bad things are going to happen, bro. Bad things are going to happen. And they, as they said, there could be a military technical response. And everybody went, oh, crap. Nobody says that to the United States. Now, keep in mind, there was um, an incident that had happened before then that was in that was in kind of let us know that things were changing after the death of Soleimani, of General Soleimani. Um, Iran struck back against the U.S., struck back with weapons, with with uh, with uh, ballistic missiles. And the U.S. got hit and, and, and there were soldiers that injured and uh, got injured and the U.S. didn't do anything, didn't fight back. Um, the Iranians shot down an unmanned U.S. drone, uh, which is redundant, unmanned drone. You get the picture. They shot down a U.S. drone. The U.S. didn't fight back, right? Didn't do anything. And the, re the reason that the U.S. didn't do anything is because they knew they were going to take a nasty punch. They knew, yeah, we may be able to defeat Iran, but do we really want to do that? Iran's going to close the Straits of Hormuz. And I don't know how much you know about the um, energy futures market, but uh, they're going to the derivatives market, you know, what, a 10 or $11 trillion derivatives market eh, would be shut down. And not to mention... The Iranians had the capacity to strike U.S. bases all throughout the Middle East. So did the U.S. really want to take a bite of that apple? Apparently not. So the country saw that. 
But they also saw Iran kind of say, look, we're going to hit the base and we're going to hit this base right here. So they kind of gave the U.S. a warning of what they were going to do. So it wasn't a big punch. It was a shove back against the U.S., but it wasn't a punch. The Russians said, not only are we not going to do what you want us to do, you're not going to surround us with bases and then overthrow Ukraine and start putting missiles in it. That ain't happening. It's not happening. We want to talk to you about it. And the U.S. said, nah, that's not even a starter. And Russia said, well, in that case, we'll do it ourselves. You know, if you can't clean Ukraine out from Nazis, if you can't do what needs to be done in Ukraine, then we'll do it. So Russia then showed that they were a world power and Russia showed that they were not afraid to uh, tangle with the U.S. And the rest of the world saw that and they're like, man. Uh, you know, this is something that somebody's going to punch back at the U.S. empire. And of course, being that it was a proxy war, being that, and here's the other part, Russia has the capacity to annihilate the United States. Do not be misled. That is in the minds of neocons. They're cowards and they don't want to die. Russia has the capacity. If you punch them too hard, if you push them too far, they have the capacity to put you to sleep. So, Russia said, hey, look, man, we ain't for no foolishness now. And at the very beginning of the war, Russia punched. And then, I don't know if you remember this, uh, Vladimir Putin said that he was going to put his nuclear deterrent system on full alert. So Russia punched. And then they coiled, just like a doggone uh, uh, you know, snake, coiled back with all their poison ready, saying, look, we don't want this to go bad. We're going to knock Ukraine out. If you step to us, you know, you better be right, because otherwise you're, you're, you're dying. You're all dead. You may be able to hurt us. You may be able to kill us, but ain't none of you, none of you walking away from this. So you better make a decision. Russia, very early in the game, put their nuclear deterrent system on alert. And the U.S. knows that they got hypersonic missiles. They got all kinds of stuff. I mean, you do that, you're dead. It's suicide. You just might as well stick a gun in your mouth. So the U.S., backed off and said, let's do this proxy war thing. And Russia said, let's dance. And the world is watching and they're seeing that Russia is an effective fighting force. They're seeing that um, for all of its bluster, a lot of the U.S. weapons aren't all they're cracked up to be. A lot of U.S. weapons are being destroyed. You know, Patriot missiles, what they turn them on, the Russians blasting them with, with uh, uh, hypersonic missiles in an hour. They turn them on, they blow them up. They turn them on, they blow them up. So they could see, wow, the U.S. Has, Russia has some nasty missiles and they ain't afraid to fight. And they saw, you know, basically what they what what the world saw was the U.S. is all mouth. As they say, an alligator mouth and a Tweety Bird ass. They, they, they'll they talk. But when it comes down to it, A, um, they ain't going to risk everything. They ain't going to risk everything. And they know they're risking everything if they try to fight Russia. And B, they're up against a tough opponent who's willing to fight, who ain't afraid to fight. And now on Arts Express, from prison to the Hollywood picket lines, a conversation with actor and filmmaker Brian Goodman. Genuine working class actors in movies is a rare enough sight and for the formerly incarcerated, even less so. From a homeless South Boston youth to five years in prison for street fights, including twice violated parole, Goodman's dream from childhood was to be an actor, landing his first role in the Donnie Wahlberg crime drama, Southie, being filmed in South Boston. Goodman talks about his subsequent portrayals with Jeff Bridges in scenes from the crime, with Robert Redford in The Last Castle, in Munich, Sons of Anarchy, and as a motel clerk in Steven Spielberg's Catch Me If You Can, and venturing into writing and directing Ethan Hawke and Mark Ruffalo in What Doesn't Kill You, along with what he has to say about walking the picket lines against Hollywood East and West. First, some scenes from What Doesn't Kill You, then Brian Goodman. Growing up around here, Everyone knew the way it was. Some took to the straight and narrow. And some, like me and Pauline, had no choice and took to the street. Get out and get some money off them, will you? In this town, hope was just an illusion. 
It's the first time. Yeah, that's your cut. You got a problem with that, Polly? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. Oh, you do? I've been lying in your pocket since you were a kid. Point is, it's supposed to be getting easier. Chasing money, staying one step ahead of the law. There's always a price to pay. So take care out there, Brian. I missed you. We okay now? Oh, yeah. Hey, what's that? You gotta kill the ball. Holly, when'd you get out? Just spending time with the kids, trying to do the right thing. We gotta stop making our own money. Every night he's out till 3, 4 in the morning. Take it easy. You take it easy. Just wanna know what it's gonna take to get you to uh, respect me. Don't leave us. I cocked an armored truck today. I'm getting away with it. I'm not going back to prison for no one. Yeah, I don't know, Paul. He's supposed to have my back. This is God. He promised me he was gonna stop. Get out! I give people one chance, and you just had yours. Nobody loves their kids more than I do. I can't give them anything. What are we gonna do? Get a job, huh? It's like standing in mud. Hi, Perry. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Okay. All right. What are your thoughts about your successful struggle to make it from prison and the hurdles faced by the formerly incarcerated into the film world? And much like the path of Danny Trejo from prison into movies. Yeah, I like Danny Trejo. I've met him a couple times, <laughs> yeah. I'm just very grateful, you know, grateful to, you know, transition from, you know, being kind of stuck in a, a street world that you, you knew nothing else and, and then to find your way out because most people unfortunately don't. And uh, just thank God, I, you know, I just was able to find a way and something to, you know, strive for. And, and it's worked out so far so good. Yeah. Very grateful. And what were the experiences like or what do you feel you learned from co-starring with Jeff Bridges as his kidnapper in Scenes of the Crime from Robert Redford in The Last Castle and from Steven Spielberg and co-star Tom Hanks in a scene as a motel clerk in Catch Me If You Can? Yeah, see, that was, uh, that was a great experience that I would never have dreamt of. If I dreamt of, you know, I dreamt of being an actor, I would have sold myself short. Steven Spielberg was a, was a great experience for me because when I first got out here, I got that movie with Robert Redford, and that was a DreamWorks film. And then I got a phone call that he wants to meet with you, so I went in and read for an hour and a half to play the father of DiCaprio, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Catch Me If You Can. And, it, and, it, and he chose Christopher Walken, which was a great choice. But he also gave me some confidence and, 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 and great words where he said, you know, that he sees some things that I do that they can't really teach in class. Keep doing what you're doing. And we could all use a little bit of a pat on the back and some confidence in life. And that went a long way with me. It just helped me. And, uh, and Jeff Bridges was... was <laughs> Jeff Bridges was a great guy. We had, I mean, the rehearsals, we didn't have really scenes together in the movie, but the rehearsal process of that was just, um, you know, on-site on training, you know? It was beautiful. Yeah. And what would you say to others who have been in prison and yearn to be actors? What advice would you give them? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, the, the, the interesting thing about prison is most people don't know that a lot of people uh, get stuck there and get comfortable there and are hiding there, you know, and, and they won't even admit it to themselves. The only thing that scared me is when you look in people's eyes because, you know, there's so much get, get, get out here. It's easy to just live with, you know, $20 and you know, nothing in your canteen. Everybody has the same thing, so you really have to find, you know, the, the, the strive to get out here because the doors don't swing right open. You have to keep plugging along and, and believe and make a real, you know, mindful change and perspective to just, you know, sometimes when you be, I do talk to people about that and alcoholics and addicts, you know, and sometimes you look at them right in the eye and you can just see that they're separated from logic. So it's a real gift from God if they get well and, and just try to make
making out here. And, and I would just encourage them in a real way, saying it's not going to be easy, but you can do it if you put your mind to it. Mm. And what was the inspiration for you to venture into writing with Danny Wahlberg and directing with What Doesn't Kill You and directing Ethan Hawke and Mark Ruffalo in your movie? You know, it was interesting because I just uh, I wanted to be an actor. And then the first auditions I went on, I got a, a part in a movie, and I was looking at a script, and I thought, in fun, I just started writing a story mm-hmm. on, a, on a notepad from, like, CVS or someplace mm-hmm. like that, just mm-hmm. out of boredom. I was writing it, and then, you know, I, I had met Donnie and him and I in close, and then we, I would be telling stories about things that I went through, and, I, you know, and then, well, we got to put this in, and, you know, and, and we just pieced it together to where, okay, we could, let's tell a story about a guy who wants to be a father, doesn't know how, wants to stop, you know, that street life and knows nothing else, mm. you know, which I thought was very common. My my story isn't, you know, the life of Mandela. It's very common in the inner city. Even more so now with the social media, all you do is hear about everyone's story. But back then it was a little bit, okay, maybe we can send a little hope out there that, you know, we can change. So that's how it began, and, and here we are, and years later, mm. still at it. <laughs> <laughs> just talented writers out here. I was just with them yesterday, walking in the picket line from the strike. Oh. Uh, yeah. Are you participating in the so, strike? Yeah, I went and walked with them already because, you oh. know, I, I, I believe in them. You know, we need them. I don't want the changes coming, to be honest with you. Before you know it, there's probably going to be robots and just... Uh. You know, I mean, you know, it's really going to be a big dismissive play on talented writers and a lot of people that have put a lot of work in. It's 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 a, it's a generation that fortunately I won't be around long enough to see the complete change of it. But you know, they want to. Um, now, there's talk about like you know how they you put in an address in Waze mm. to get somewhere. You know, that eventually they'll be able to slide in an old script. Something different could come out and. You know, it's a big dismiss of, like, a lot of history, you know. Mm. And um, here we are. But that's my take on it, you know. <laughs> and thank you yeah. so much for calling into the show, Brian Goodman. Thanks, and I, Oh, well, good luck with the strike. Appreciate you. Okay. Thank you. And coming up next on Arts Express, Capitol Hill is an assisted living facility for psychopaths. Multi-talented journalist, poet, songwriter, political analyst, and self-described digital street philosopher Caitlin Johnstone with Notes from the Edge of the Narrative Matrix, presented and co-authored by Tom Foley. Capitol Hill is an assisted living facility for psychopaths. Notes from the edge of the narrative matrix. One major problem with media literacy is that everyone is taught to watch out for liberal bias and conservative bias, but nobody is taught to watch out for U.S. empire bias. Two things are clear. It would be completely irrational and insane for the U.S. to go to war with China and the U.S. is plainly preparing to go to war with China. These two points can appear contradictory, but only if you first assume that the U.S. empire is rational and sane. Here's a tweet by Mark Ames. What is going on in D.C.? Sharing an article from Compact Mag, The Coming War with China. Quote, There is now open talk in Washington about a potential war with China, and soon. To take just one example, Representatives Mike Waltz and Jason Crow spoke as if war with China is highly probable, even guaranteed, end quote. They're rapidly surrounding China with war machinery, and Biden's pick for the nation's top military position wants to escalate this. What does that look like to you? The only two political views you're allowed to have are A, the U.S. should rule the world with an iron fist, and the biosphere should be fed into the insatiable mouth of capitalism, or B, the U.S. should rule the world with an iron fist, and the biosphere should be fed into the insatiable mouth of capitalism 
but racistly. There's a clip of Mitch McConnell inexplicably freezing during a press conference and being quickly escorted away. Capitol Hill is an assisted living facility for psychopaths. It's where people who receive sexual gratification from dropping military explosives on civilians go to wait for the sweet embrace of death. The whole place smells like night terrors and urine. Does it not seem odd to anyone else how it appears we are being drip-fed the mainstream UFO narrative in steadily stranger increments? In 2017, it was, yeah, there's these craft and we don't know what they are, but haha, we're not saying it's aliens, ha ha ha. Then later it was, oh yeah, they could totally be aliens because we don't have that kind of tech. And now it's, they're extraterrestrial or extra-dimensional beings, and our government is hiding their dead bodies and reverse-engineering UFOs, and they definitely pose a national security threat. I mean, if you wanted to pace the public from aliens and UFOs are ridiculous tinfoil hat nonsense to aliens and UFOs are real and the government needs to do something about them, I can't imagine it looking much different from what it looked like from 2017 to 2023. I'm not one of those people who thinks everything is a government psyop, but if any single topic was going to be involved in a psyop, it would be UFOs and aliens, especially since the U.S. government has a known history of using the subject of UFOs and aliens in psyops. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The most extraordinary claims require the most extraordinary evidence. The most extraordinary claims coming from inside a government with an extensive record of lying and psyops require rock-solid proof. This is true of UFOs, and it's true of highly consequential claims about misdeeds by foreign governments made in a post-Iraq invasion world. Back in the day, someone who expressed skepticism of what they were told would be called a Doubting Thomas, after the apostle in the Bible who refused to believe Jesus had come back from the dead until he'd seen it himself and personally put his fingers in the wounds from his crucifixion. In the Gospel, Thomas is framed as inferior to those who did not express skepticism, with Jesus himself showing up and telling him that those who believed without having seen are blessed. This is one of many instances in which a foundational scripture of our civilization encourages us to be weak-minded and submissive, which helps explain why so many of us are. We should all have exactly the same attitude as Thomas toward extraordinary claims of potentially immense consequence. I'll believe in the hidden alien bodies when you show them to the public and let an independent panel of scientists verify their authenticity. I'll believe in the Russian election meddling when you show me rock-solid proof that can be independently verified by experts. I'll believe this allegation of genocide or that claim of war crimes once I've been presented with the mountain of proof that rises to the level required in a post-Iraq invasion world. Thinking for yourself and distrusting authority is being increasingly shamed and stigmatized in our society, especially in liberal circles where people are castigated for skepticism in much the same way Jesus castigated Thomas in the Bible story. But we really have no other option when we are ruled by power-hungry tyrants with an extensive documented history of lying to us about issues of immense importance. We need to demand hard proof that we can figuratively place our finger into for ourselves. This is why government transparency is so important. If we could simply see what these people are doing instead of having it all hidden from us behind a thick veil of secrecy, the concept of trust would be a non-issue, because we could see it for ourselves. We would trust the government, not in the way you trust a friend or spouse, but in the same way we trust our senses. As long as we know the truth is being hidden from us, and often aggressively criminalized, and as long as we know they'll feed us lies and manipulations whenever it's convenient, Intense skepticism is the only rational position to hold.
next on the program, Who Am I? In the Arts Express Undercover episode this week, Brett Gregory at our UK desk in the writer's corner, reading his short story, I Used to Be Jewish. Hi, this is the UK desk for Arts Express, and my name is Brett Gregory. Over the past week or so, in preparation for reviewing his latest book, I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get to It, I've been exploring the fascinating life and work of the Jewish academic firebrand and political activist Norman Finkelstein. His relationship with his mother, his writings on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, his lectures on the Holocaust industry and his life in New York. As a consequence, I soon found myself reflecting upon my own life as a white British male growing up in the north of England and the period of time when, believe it or not, I used to be Jewish. Now this is a true story. When I was 18 months old in the 1970s, my father abandoned me and my mother. My mother then eventually married another man a few years later who hated me and beat me because I wasn't his son. He made me feel like I was nothing, completely alone and ashamed. To make matters worse, my mother insisted that I take my stepfather's surname to keep up appearances while I was at school and, surprisingly, on reflection, the school accepted this, and, in turn, so did the local doctor and dentist. Of course, I was too young to understand. Thus, for the next ten years, I was known as Brett Parkinson to all and sundry. After her marriage with my stepfather inevitably ended in violent catastrophe, I demanded, at the age of sixteen, to see my birth certificate. I read this certificate extremely closely, especially the name of my natural father, who I had never known. In little black sweeps of what I imagined to be the work of a quill, it read Vaughan Reuben Gregory. Wow, my name is really Brett Gregory, not Brett Parkinson. I like it. It sounds real. It sounds elegant, as if I'm a writer or something. But wait, Reuben? Reuben is a Jewish name. Does that mean I'm like a quarter Jewish or something? My mother shrugged her shoulders. He always said his middle name was Reuben. I don't believe it. I'm a quarter Jewish and no one ever told me. My difference was confirmed. I never really got on with people around me and now I knew why. Happy days. I finally felt I was a part of something. Something historical, biblical political and meaningful. I was a quarter Jewish. I was a part of, in a way, the Jewish diaspora. This was important, life-changing information. In response, I promptly watched all of Woody Allen's films in order to understand what it meant to be an urbane Jewish male in the 20th century, an intellectual, a wit and a schlemiel. I read all of Franz Kafka's short stories, Art Spiegelman's Mouse, and even Gustav Meyrink's novel The Golem from 1915. Moreover, in my final year at university, the dissertation I submitted was called Woody Allen, the Political Character of Comedy. Look at me, I thought to myself, age 21, a full-blown, genuine Jew serving his people, his brethren. Of course, I didn't tell anyone about my new ethnicity, however, my new identity. I just told them I had a strong interest in Jewish arts and culture. I kept myself hidden, you see, secret, to avoid any problems. Twenty years later, the mother of Vaughan Reuben Gregory, my long-lost father, rang me out of the blue to tell me that she was dying of cancer and that she wanted to meet me at her home in Oxford. I was shocked, thrilled and terrified all at once. Why would she want to meet me after all this time? What does she want? What could I give her? I was tearful. Obediently, I took a train from Manchester to Oxford. The return ticket cost over £100. The house I arrived at was frightfully suburban and middle class, with porcelain ornaments covering every available shelf space. There was also an open scrapbook on the coffee table filled with hundreds of clippings of Diana, the Princess of Wales. Where am I? I thought. Moreover, there was a tiny framed photograph of myself as a newborn baby 
precisely and conveniently resting in the middle of the mantelpiece. Look, this brand new dying grandmother said, I've kept it all these years. After a few hours of polite, meaningless chat, I finally plucked up the courage to say, I never knew I was part Jewish though, that my dad was, you know, also part Jewish. What do you mean, she said. Well, on my birth certificate, it says Vaughan Reuben Gregory, which is, you know, Jewish. Reuben is a Jewish name. And she burst out laughing. Oh no, she said. He wrote that down because he was always a penny pincher. It was a joke, a family joke. Gregory is a Scottish name. Your grandfather was from Dundee and I'm from Dundee. You're not Jewish. If anything, you're Scottish. A couple of years later, after she died, I was teaching a university entry course to a group of reluctant adults. One of these students was a 30-year-old called Matthew Kaufman, who had a chip on his shoulder because, obviously, he deserved to be in higher places than my low-level lectures on British cinema in the 1960s. To break the ice, I decided to tell him my I used to be Jewish story. And, surprisingly, he listened. And, after I'd finished, he too burst out laughing. That's one of the most Jewish stories I've ever heard, he said, threw his bag over his shoulder and left the classroom. This has been the UK Desk for Arts Express and I've been Brett Gregory. Cheers. John Leguizamo, and I want to give a shout out to everybody. Get political. <laughs> Get your political on. This is John Leguizamo. Bro on the global television beat, Arts Express correspondent Professor Dennis Bro on the Hollywood strikes, writers and actors challenging the corporate lords of film and television. Bro breaks it all down. This is Bro on the global television beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, writers and actors challenge the corporate lords of film and television. The Hollywood writers and actors strikes, the first time both unions have been on strike at the same time since 1960, have thrown the industry into an uproar as both groups together question and reverse some of the main precepts of not only the Hollywood film and television industry, but the way work as a whole is constructed and managed in the digital age. The first precept being challenged is that unions and union solidarity is a dead letter in the era of artificial intelligence and ever-increasing corporate power and prestige as the twin answers to solving the world's ills. The high profile of the two striking unions has drawn more attention and produced much more publicity for unions. The news stories in the New York Times, for example, have doubled since the actors joined the writers on strike, with most major publications feeling the need to generate stories from the picket lines, where formerly the major news outlets concentrated mainly on the beginning and end of strikes. This has produced a kind of reversed blacklist effect. In 1947, the House Un-American Activities Committee decided it would launch its campaign against radical elements in the labor force by first attacking Hollywood and thus ensuring maximum publicity in its campaign of fear. Here, the opposite is happening. In the wake of the Occupy movement and using some of that language, the coverage of the strikes of the two unions, largely favorable in the press since its readers are avid followers of films and television series, have prompted more favorable coverage of other strikes. Teamsters and nurses have shown up on the picket lines at the Hollywood studios, with the former helping to stop production in some cases, while the leaders of the Writers Guild joined hotel workers in a July 4th strike for higher wages. One of the, on the actor's picket line, Fran Drescher, president of the Actors Guild, 
employed the Occupy language of the 1% to criticize executive salaries. She described one of the most powerful men in the industry, Disney's president, Michael Iger, who makes $27 million annually, as a dazzling example of the rampant inequality in pay structure. She claimed that she was on the line representing, quote, the 99.9% of the membership who are working people who are just trying to make a living to put food on the table, pay rent, and get their kids off to school, while labeling the Hollywood executives as land barons of a medieval time. This labeling not only echoes the language of the Occupy movement, but is also drawn from a popular left characterization of a new feudalism, with the majority of the population now in the position of serfs serving corporate lords. One of the main claims of the writers is that they can no longer afford to live in a city they helped build as Los Angeles rents skyrocket. This claim is similar to the hotel workers who say they have to live outside the city and sometimes travel 90 to 100 miles to work. The writer's claim was validated by a studio exec who anonymously told Deadline that the studio producers would, quote, bleed out writers and force them to start losing their apartments. The second major tenet of Hollywood and the television industry, which the strikes are challenging, is the attempt to conceal profits and keep from paying residuals. For over 70 years, the vast majority of television series operated on the principle of deficit financing. Producers and talent, writers, directors, and actors understood that the vast majority of money being made on any television series would come after the series was sold into syndication. The magic number that would trigger these sales was 100 episodes. The show would then become profitable in perpetuity, with its creators and financiers able to live off these sales. Part of the drive toward online subscription services, where the studio or streamer locks content behind a solid wall, is the elimination of these residuals, or the limiting of them, since the creators can no longer track how their work is being monetized. The streamers, on the other hand, have much more data and can track viewer habits minutely, down to the second where the viewer continues to watch or tunes out. The old system, with the Nielsen ratings and with syndicated contracts, was much more transparent and allowed creators to track profits though the studios often tried to conceal their gains. A major demand of both strikes is finding a way to reclaim residuals in the age of streaming. The battle here goes beyond film and television writers and actors and encompasses the problems with monetizing digital work as a whole. Journalists, for example, often work for less or for nothing on internet publications, while search engines such as Alphabet's Google and Microsoft's Bing accrue value by appropriating stories from news outlets and only reluctantly pay for this content. The third major precept which the strikes are challenging is the parceling of work, a trend that is going on throughout industry as a whole and which is being exacerbated by experiments with artificial intelligence and programs such as ChatGPT. The idea of breaking all kinds of work into tasks has of course been around since the Taylorist experiments with assembly lines in the 20s. What is new, or as the owners say, innovative, is the potential ability, once the work is broken down into its component parts, to have laborers replaced with robotic replicators of their work, or to reduce work to smaller, more degraded, poorly paid jobs. One of the complaints of the actors, echoed even more strongly by the writers, is that, quote, our careers have been turned into gig work. The meteoric rise in streaming has been fed by the work of writers creating television series of high quality and moving themselves into all aspects of production to make sure, like the Hollywood directors of old, that all aspects of the series, costuming, makeup, set construction, form a seamless whole. This expansion fueled the rise of more and more showrunners responsible for the overall concept of the series. The producers instead are attempting to limit the writers to just their time in the writing room and then release them. Their preferred model is to pay a single creator an exorbitant salary, such as Shonda Rhimes for Bridgerton, Ryan Murphy for American Horror Story, and Taylor Sheridan for Yellowstone, and dispense with the rest. The Writers Guild has been tracking this trend and says the writer's time on a series has decreased because they are let go faster, and that in 2022, over half of the writers stripped of their producing jobs are being paid at the weekly minimum, as opposed to only one-third eight years ago. Contrary to the Tom Cruise version of AI and Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, where an all-powerful entity threatens a machine takeover of the Earth, the real challenge of AI, which this Hollywood fantasy version conceals, is that it will be used to unemploy workers in all kinds of industries, as well as forcing them to work harder through its monitoring capacities. Thus, 
Warehouse workers describe being tracked minutely, pressuring them to skip breaks, while setting them up for disciplinary actions if their goals are not met. The personal touch of service workers, who one worker described as providing a kind of therapy to their clients, is discounted as their work is automated. A recent Biden administration summit to regulate AI rather than impose restrictions allowed the seven major makers of the service to voluntarily agree to guidelines. None of the restrictions even mentioned AI's power to eliminate, tame, and discipline the U.S. workforce. A long-term goal for Hollywood use of AI is potentially to use the machine to grind out scripts that are then created, not by the writer, but by the studio. The scenario for this goal involves the studio plugging in a basic concept with AI or ChatGPT, which then churns out a highly unworkable script. A writer would then be hired to first turn the script into a workable scenario. But the credit and the profits would then go to the studio. This is an attempt to turn television production back to the 1950s, when, for example, Warners cheated the showrunner, Roy Huggins, out of the created buy credits for both Maverick and 77 Sunset Strip, two shows which kept the studio alive. For Maverick, the studio bought the rights to a book that a plot turn in the pilot employed and thus claimed it owned the property. With 77 Sunset Strip, Warner screened the pilot in a movie theater outside the U.S. and claimed the studio then owned the rights to the film. Huggins himself addressed this ignominy in his next contract with Universal, which granted him the created by credit and established it as a norm for the industry. An actor on the picket line described AI as a tool to generate wealth, noting that the main task of this entity was cutting jobs for corporate profit, while another Writers Guild member summoned up the endgame as creating material in the cheapest, most piecemeal, automated way possible so that one layer of high-level creatives take the cheaply generated material and turn it into something. The Actors and Writers Guild's demand to have control of how this process is used is a crucial attempt to counter this thrust. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Thank you, Dennis Bro. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.